All right. We will go right into 1 Corinthians chapter 14 here tonight. And for those of you who have not been with us, uh, we are in a study of spiritual gifts uh, as we've been going through the various scripture passages that discuss spiritual gifts. And we are really reaching the end of this entire study as we have gone through 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. And we are now ending in the subject we've turned our attention to most recently, which is the subject of tongues, the gift of tongues. Now, as we've mentioned, the tongue gift is mentioned in three books in our Bible, at least specifically, the books of Mark, the book of Acts, the book of 1 Corinthians. And in each of these places, which we have looked at to this point, we have been trying to unearth the archaeology of this important gift, this gift that has received so much controversy and difficulty in our modern age. As we've talked about, before we really dive into 1 Corinthians 14, we had to dig into the book of Acts and see where the uh, tongue gift was given and what context and what circumstances it was provided. And last Sunday evening, I left each of you with some homework. I said, your task this week is to look at the passages we've mentioned in Acts and we expounded last week and compare them to 1 Corinthians 14 and then ask yourself the question, do these appear to be a similar context, a similar outworking of this gift of tongues or different? In other words, is what we see described in 1 Corinthians 14 map neatly onto what we see in the book of Acts, or do we see something different? So my question for you, I'm going to ask you to put your cards on the table now. I'm going to ask if you think that Acts is describing something that is ultimately similar to what is in 1 Corinthians 14, why don't you raise your hand? If you think Acts is, de- is detailing something that is very similar in your estimation to what is going on in 1 Corinthians 14, raise your hand. Okay. All right. If you believe that Acts and 1 Corinthians 14 are describing different kinds of phenomena or different kinds of exercise of this spiritual gift, raise your hand. Okay, interesting, interesting. We are equally, we're about equally split, which is a wonderful place for me to be in as I start. I'm not gonna leave you hanging on this. I'm gonna tell you what my view is and we'll go from there. If you were to ask me, Peter, do you believe that the gifts described in the book of Acts in this exercise of tongues are, this, are similar to or different from the gifts in 1 Corinthians 14, my answer very unambiguously would be yes. Are they similar to? Yes. Are they different from? Yes. Yes. Yes, all around. It would be like me asking you this. Are lions similar to or different from tigers? The answer would be yes. Yes. Lions and tigers, if you don't know, I'm sure Lars probably knows and could tell you all about the differences here. Lions and tigers belong to the same genus. The same family. The family, or the genus, I should say, panthera. But are they the same species? No. Do they share characteristics that make them appropriate in a genus? Yes. They are known by their growling. They are known, uh, that actually is really one of the fundamental characteristics of the panthera family, in case you didn't know that. Uh, They have characteristics as big cats and as hunters and as predators that we'd say they're similar. And yet anyone who looks at lions and tigers would be able to say there are ways in which they are distinct. If I were to ask you, is the violin similar to or different from the guitar? You would say, yes. In some ways, they share very similar characteristics. They are instruments of music that use strings and can create sound and harmony and all of the other characteristics we assign with music. In some ways, are they unique and different and distinct? And the answer, of course, obviously is yes. I think you get the point. What I want to suggest tonight is that the tongues, the exercise of tongues we see in Acts and in the book of 1 Corinthians share the same genus, if you will, 
but are different species. And in that sense, I think we will be prepared ultimately to answer the question, not this week, but God willing next week, about how this gift of tongues may or may not operate in our current uh, uh, Christian environment, in our culture today, and how to think about them biblically in our Christian environment today. The title of the message tonight is simply Tongues, Genus, and Species. Tongues, Genus, and species. We're going to do three different things tonight. First, we're going to look at a classification of tongues here in 1 Corinthians 14. We're just going to march through the description of tongues here in 1 Corinthians 14 and just identify the fundamental elements that Paul brings out. That's just my goal, to take the text as it lies. My father always used to say, when you come to scripture, play the ball where it lies. And we're going to see tonight Our goal as Christians should not be to reach our conclusion and then argue from it. Our goal should be to study until a conclusion and then sit with that. Let's make sure that we are classifying it according to the text that we see here, not what we want the text to say. Secondly, we'll do a cross-reference. We'll connect the fundamental elements that we see in 1 Corinthians 14 and cross-reference it back to what we studied in Acts last week. And then third, we'll draw some conclusions from this classification and cross-reference. Let's start with the classification. Now, as an attorney, I am confronted with this all the time. If a client says to me, what are, what is fraud? What is the claim of fraud? I want to know whether I can sue someone for fraud. Tell me what it is. What I would do to them is I would say, well, the law recognizes three or four or five elements of fraud, and here they are. You need a false statement of material fact with an intent to deceive that causes. I mean, I could go through those elements. I would say, here are the fundamental elements of this claim of this something called fraud. What I want to do tonight is just try to take a similar approach. What are the fundamental elements in 1 Corinthians 14 to this exercise of what Paul calls the gift of tongues? Let's start with the first element. And you can write all of these down. We will cross-reference them, so I suspect they will be helpful. Here's the first one. It is that someone is moved by the Spirit. That is implicit in everything that Paul is telling us here because back in 1 Corinthians 12, he has told us that the, the Holy Spirit gives as a manifestation of himself a gift of tongues. Not only a gift of tongues, but a gift of the interpretation of tongues. And so it is clear here that in the genuine gift in 1 Corinthians 14 that Paul is referencing, it is someone who is moved by the Holy Spirit. It is a manifestation of the Spirit that is coming out of their life. And therefore, we say it is consistent with what we have defined spiritual gifts more broadly as a manifestation of the Spirit. So first element, the first fundamental element we have to receive from 1 Corinthians 14, it is someone who has been moved by the Spirit. The second is this. Someone who is moved by the Spirit to communicate to God. Now take a look with me at verse number two. He says, for he that speaketh, In an unknown tongue, now that word unknown is in italics in our King James Bible because it's not there. The very idea is just the Greek word from the Greek word glossa. It is just simply tongue, or as we've used to describe it in the past, language, a means of communication. So he that speaks in this tongue gift speaketh not unto men, but unto God. I want you to think about that for just a moment. If I were to say of another person that they were speaking to God, what would you think they were doing? Praying? What's something else that we might do when we speak to God? Singing? What's something else that we might do when we are speaking to God? Preaching? Well, preaching might be, I would say, more more broadly to men. What about giving thanks. That's a species of prayer, you might say. But 
we've already identified three aspects in which men speak to God. And if you go forward to verse number 14, you'll see Paul again reiterating this idea. In verse 14, he says, for if I, what? What's the next word? Pray. What am I doing when I pray? Speaking to God. In an unknown tongue, my spirit prayeth, but my understanding is unfruitful. Notice what he says in verse 15. I will pray with the spirit and I will pray with the understanding also. I will, what's the next word? Sing with the spirit. I will sing with the understanding also. And then he says in verse 16, else when thou shalt bless with the spirit, how shall he that occupieth the room of the unlearned say amen at thy what? Giving of thanks. So Paul is contemplating in 1 Corinthians 14 a speech here that is not directed toward men, but that is directed toward God in something akin to prayer, in something akin to singing, or something akin to thanksgiving. So we have someone moved by the Spirit to communicate to God what? This is important. A noble message. And I would add with spiritual significance, a knowable message with spiritual significance. Go back to verse two. For he that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men, but unto God. And why is he speaking to God and not to men? For no man understandeth him. But notice what he says. How be it in the spirit, he speaketh mysteries. Now, maybe you'd be tempted to say, well, mysteries, that's like someone that is just mumbo jumbo. We don't understand what he's saying. Well, he said people don't understand what this person is saying, but that's not the biblical idea of a mystery. Do you know the last time Paul uses this idea of a mystery? He uses the same word one chapter before in 1 Corinthians 13. Go back to 1 Corinthians 13. In verse 2, he says, and though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all what? Mysteries. Same word. So he is saying there is something in this prophetic gift that allows me to understand mysteries. What is the idea? Some kind of spiritual revelation from God. There's something that is being revealed to him by God in this sense of mystery. Now in chapter 14 in verse 2, he's saying that the person is speaking to God with what? Something that has been revealed to him. Or, or some kind of revelation. He is not speaking mumbo jumbo. He is speaking revelation. He is speaking mysteries. And he contrasts that to prophecy. He that prophesieth speaketh unto men to edification, to build them up, and exhortation and comfort. So we see here, someone moved by the Spirit to communicate to God a knowable message with spiritual significance. Why else do I say a knowable message? Because Paul assumes in this chapter that it can be interpreted. He assumes that if someone is speaking in tongues, there may be someone gifted in the room to interpret it and say, this is what this message means. None of you understand it because it's not in your language. It is not something that you can comprehend. But this has a message. Notice what he says in verse number 13. Wherefore, let him that speaketh in an unknown tongue pray that he may interpret. And he forbids any tongue speaking in the church that is not interpreted. My suggestion to you is that if it were gibberish, if it were an unknowable message, it would not have the ability to be interpreted. The fact that there is an interpretation that is available suggests that there is a knowable message connected to it. It is not mere speaking into the air in a spiritual sense. God is communicating something. So someone moved by the Spirit to communicate to God a knowable message with spiritual significance. Now here's the fourth in a language that that person has never learned and doesn't understand. Now, this is maybe where it gets difficult for us to understand, but we just have to take Scripture where it lies. What is Paul saying to us? 
Why do we say this is a language this person has never learned? And something he doesn't understand. Go with me to verse again, number 13. Wherefore, let him that speaketh in an unknown tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prays. What is my spirit praying? What did we see in verse 2? It's praying what? Mysteries. But my understanding is what? Unfruitful. So the idea here is that someone, Paul's idea in 1 Corinthians 14, is that someone is, is speaking in words that he doesn't even understand. Just to confirm that, I would say, why does Paul say that if you speak in a tongue, you should pray that you may interpret? If you know the language, you don't need to pray that you can interpret. You already know it. Paul says, no. In this case, your understanding is unfruitful. And for it to become fruitful for the edification of the body of Christ, you need to pray that you will understand. And if you don't understand, and there is not anyone in the congregation who is gifted to interpret the words that you don't understand and no one else may understand, then you stay quiet. You don't speak at all. That is to say... 1 Corinthians 14 assumes that either you or someone else in the church may be gifted to interpret the spiritual significance of speaking a language you've never known and you do not understand. Again, if we're just simply playing the ball where it lies, this seems to be the clear teaching of 1 Corinthians 14. Notice what else he says in verse 16. He says, else when thou shalt bless or give thanks with the Spirit, how shall he that occupieth the room of the unlearned say amen at thy giving of thanks? Seeing he understandeth not what thou sayest. Notice what he says in verse 17. For thou verily givest thanks well. Paul is saying, even in the circumstance when you don't even understand what you're saying in the exercise of this gift of tongues, you still may be giving thanks well even if you don't understand and no one else understands either in that room. So someone moved by the Spirit to communicate to God a noble message with spiritual significance in a language he's never learned and doesn't understand. Now here's the context and the next point that's very important we need to make. Paul is suggesting that doing so will either be in private or in public under strict regulation. That's what we talked about this morning. Do you recall? Paul gives specific instruction for how tongue speaking is to be regulated in the church at Corinth. Notice what he says in verse 27. If any man speak in an unknown tongue, let it be by two or at the most by three and that by course or in order, taking turns. And let one interpret, but if there be no interpreter, let him keep silence in the church. Now listen to this. And let him speak to himself and to God. Now, from those, that verse, do you believe that it would be Paul's intent to say, if you cannot speak in the exercise, the gift of tongues in the church, you should never exercise it? Is that what he's saying? No, because he's saying if there's no one to interpret it, then just be quiet in the church, but you can still speak to yourself and to God. So it seems plain to me, at least, that Paul is not intending to say tongue speaking is only in the context of public worship. He's saying it can be if there's an interpreter at Corinth, but he's saying if there's not an interpreter, all that means is it's ruled out for public worship because it cannot edify but go ahead and speak to yourself and to God. Now, I also believe this is what Paul is saying because we go back to see what his own testimony is. Notice with me in verse 18. He says, I thank my God. I speak with tongues more than you all. Paul's saying, I don't want you to think that I'm negative toward whatever this gift of tongue speaking is. I do it more than you. 
But here's what he says. How be it, or yet in the church, I had rather speak five words with my understanding than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. It, again, the contrast seems clear to me. Paul is saying, I speak with tongues more than all of you, but in the church, I'm going to speak understandable words. What is the natural implication of that? I sometimes speak with tongues out of the church. I speak with tongues more than you all, but in the church, implying I don't always speak with tongues in the church. So I believe here that there's a consistent connection that at least in Paul's mind here in 1 Corinthians 14, there is a public exercise of a tongue gift that if there is an interpreter present at Corinth may benefit the people who are there. But he's not intending to suggest, at least as I read the plain text of 1 Corinthians 14, I don't read him as saying, but if there is no interpreter present, you may never exercise this gift. It seems to me that he is at least holding out the possibility of a private exercise of this gift. And that leads us to the last of these elements. It is someone moved by the Spirit to communicate to God a knowable message with spiritual significance in a language he's never learned and doesn't understand in private or if in public under strict regulation. And here's the last one. Primarily for his own edification. Now what I mean by primarily is if he is speaking Privately, Notice what Paul says. He says this in verse number four. He says, he that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifies who? Himself. I, I don't really know how to make it much clearer than that, friends. He says, if you speak in an unknown tongue, if you exercise this spiritual gift of tongues, you edify yourself. If you speak, if you prophesy, what do you do? Who do you edify? Others. And that's why he says prophecy in the church is a greater gift than tongue speaking because one edifies others and one only edifies yourself. Now, of course, he goes on to say that if there is an interpreter present at Corinth, it might, everyone might receive edifying and therefore tongue speaking might edify others in addition to yourself. But the context here suggests that if there is a private exercise of this gift of tongues or there is something that is being spoken to oneself and to God, I am being edified. Now, let me pause here for just a moment. You might rightly ask, I, I'm confused. How could I be edified? How could a Christian be edified by speaking in a language he's never under, heard, he's never learned and has never understood? If he doesn't understand or she doesn't understand what he or she is saying, how can that person be edified? I don't necessarily have a perfect answer for you other than that Paul says he or she is. It may be indeed that the edification simply comes in the act of knowing that the Holy Spirit is using you and speaking mysteries in your spirit. That may be, it may be as simple as that, that Paul has this in mind. All that he says is that in this exercise of tongues at Corinth, if there is no interpreter present and one is speaking to himself and to God, there is edification. And so again, if I were just to, to categorize, to classify what I see plainly in 1 Corinthians 14, I would break it into these elements. Someone moved by the Spirit to communicate to God a noble message with spiritual significance in a language he's never learned and doesn't understand for primarily his own edification unless interpreted and in private or if in public under strict regulation. Now, I would be happy if some of you see it differently, if some of you interpret this text differently, think I've missed something from this chapter, please see me after tonight. I would love to be challenged and encouraged from this, but as I read this just plainly, this is what I interpret Paul to be saying here. So now let's do a cross-reference, shall we? I don't know if you came up with all of that when you were studying 1 Corinthians 14 or if that was consistent with what your interpretation of it was. But let's go back to Acts, chap Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 19. And let me ask you this question first. Were the people in Acts who spoke in tongues on three occasions, Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, 
Acts chapter 10 at Cornelius' house, and Acts chapter 19, the disciples of John the Baptist who spoke in tongues upon the reception of the Spirit. Would we say yes or no that they were moved by the Spirit? Yes or no? Yes. Can we all agree there? It was consistent with the Holy Spirit coming upon them in a special way in all three cases. It was evidence of their reception of the Holy Spirit that they were now speaking in this gift of tongues. Let's go to the second element. Would we say in the book of Acts that people not only were moved by the Spirit, but to communicate to God? Do we see the evidence, do we see the examples in the book of Acts as communicating to men or communicating to God? How many of you say, I think they were communicating to God? How many of you say, I think they were communicating to men? Interesting. Interesting. You know, friends, I don't think we can be dogmatic about this because I don't think Scripture is dogmatic about it. But do you know, I think there's a pretty persuasive case to be made they were speaking to God. Go back to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Listen to how it's described of what they were saying. Verse 4 says, And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now listen to what is described as what they were saying. They heard them speak in their own language. And they said, verse 8, How hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? And skip ahead to verse 11. We do hear them speak in our tongues, what? The wonderful works of God. Now, I want to suggest why it's a little ambiguous here is because we don't know whether these people were truly speaking to people going as if to evangelize them and tell them about the wonderful works of God or whether they were just praising God and people overheard them speaking. Do you see, you see the difference? You see there, there's ambiguity there? Let me suggest, I think, at least a reason why they may have been speaking to God is because what happened for the people who didn't understand what they were saying what did they say? These people are drunk. Do you know what would look a little drunk to me? If I went down Nicollet Avenue and there were people praising God, but in languages I didn't understand at all, I'd say, what's going on with these people? In other words, I don't think it's necessarily the right interpretation to say that these people were going out into the crowd speaking to people miraculously. It could be. I'm not being dogmatic about it. But it would be consistent with 1 Corinthians 14 to see that their testimony to the wonderful works of God was praise to God, not necessarily speech to man. Again, we can't be dogmatic about it, but that is, I think, at least credible. Go to chapter 10. Chapter 10. Let's look at this other example. At the very end of this chapter, the Holy Ghost is poured out on these Gentiles, Cornelius and those in his house. And listen, verse 46. For they heard them speak with tongues and what? Magnify God. Do you know what that sounds an awful lot like? Praise. What do we do when we speak praise? Are we generally speaking to men or to God? To God. That would be often the most common way we would speak in praise. Again, can we be, be dogmatic about it? No, I don't get any sense here from, from, from Acts chapter 10 that these individuals were speaking to Peter and them the wonderful works of God, magnifying God. It seems as if they may indeed have been speaking to God. And in Acts 19, again, it is similarly ambiguous, but we could draw a similar conclusion that these people may have been speaking to God more than they were speaking to man. So again, were they speaking, a com they, were they communicating to God? It's possible, but we have to recognize it's at least a little ambiguous. Let's go on to the next element. They were speaking, moved by the Spirit, they may have been communicating to God. Was it a knowable message? 
Was it a knowable message or was it gibberish? It was a knowable message. How do we know that? Because they were magnifying God. How do we know that? Because they were testifying to the wonderful works of God. And in Acts 19, we actually, Scripture says, they spoke with tongues and prophesied. So there clearly was some revelation going on even in the midst of their tongue speaking. So just as 1 Corinthians 14 presumes that it is a noble message because it may be interpreted, in the same way, Acts is, in these examples, I'm suggesting to you, there is a communicable message. There is a knowable message underlying it. Okay, let's go on to the next one. In the book of Acts, do we see examples of tongues in a language they don't know or they have never learned and they don't understand? That's also a challenging one, to be perfectly candid. But at least we have the sense, at least my sense is, that these individuals who are speaking in tongues in, Acts, in the book of Acts understood what they were saying. That is the best I understand it. Why? Because they were testifying the wonderful works of God. There was at least the understanding to know, I am speaking something about God here. I am magnifying God. I am praising him. I understand what I am saying. Now again, I'm not going to be dogmatic about that in any particular sense. But as I read Acts, I get the sense that there is a difference here. That in the book of Acts, these people may indeed have been communicating a message they understood, unlike in Acts. Let's go to the next one. In the book of Acts, were the exercise of tongue gifts in private or if in public under the strict regulation of 1 Corinthians 14? Were they in private? No, they were in groups. They were in groups. Groups of people were, the Spirit fell upon groups, and these groups were speaking. Now, in the exercise of this spiritual gift of tongues, were they speaking one by one? At most, two or three. Uh, there isn't an interpreter. They just stop. No. Isn't that interesting? It's clear that 1 Corinthians 14 is giving new revelation. But we should recognize that there's a difference. In the book of Acts, in which men are speaking and women are speaking in tongues publicly all at once. And the book of Acts, in, or excuse me, in the book of 1 Corinthians, in which Paul is clearly giving very in, important guidelines to follow for the exercise of this gift. Now, here's the last one. In the book of Acts, were people speaking in tongues primarily for their own edification or for the edification of others? What would we say? I would say others. Do you remember what we talked about last week? Who did God want to send a message to in Acts chapter 2? Who needed to hear the message of speaking in tongues? Who needed to hear that message? All the Jews in Jerusalem. All those who didn't speak the language. The message was being communicated to them. God said, this is a message. This is a sign to you. And some heard it and some rejected it. It was a sign of drawing them to the gospel, and it was a sign of judgment for those who would not accept it. What about in Acts 10? Who was the edification to? Who was the primary message that God wanted to send to? Peter and the other Jews. They needed to see the Holy Spirit has fallen on the Gentiles. God has brought and he's opened the door to the Gentiles to repentance and faith. They needed some specific edification. They needed a message, a sign from God. What about Acts 19? Who needed the message? The disciples of John. The disciples of John who needed to see that their salvation wasn't going to come through John the Baptist. It was going to come through Jesus Christ and through his apostles, his missionaries, which is why when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit fell and they were confirmed in their faith. So we would say from the book of Acts, do you see now, there seems to be a very similar genus what is that? What is the family, we would say, of this exercise of this gift of tongues as Jesus prophesied would happen in Mark chapter 16? It is someone moved by the Spirit to speak a noble spiritual message in a language they've never learned. 
If I were to classify the family, the genus of spiritual, of the spiritual gift of tongues that we see across scripture, I would boil it down to that. It is individuals moved by the spirit to speak in a knowable, to speak a knowable message in a language they've never learned. That is, in my estimation, the broad swath of teaching on the exercise of tongues in the New Testament. Now, what would we say as a conclusion to that genus? What would be excluded? What would be excluded from the family, you might say, of the exercise of spiritual, tongue, of spiritual gifts of tongues in the first century? I would put it like this. I would say it excludes the speech that would be ecstatic utterance. I do not believe that the New Testament gift of tongues could be properly called an ecstatic utterance in this sense, in the sense that it is along the lines of gibberish without a message underlying it. Because I see in both 1 Corinthians 14 and in the book of Acts that God used this message to communicate, excuse this gift, I should say, to communicate a knowable spiritual message. Now, this is important because today in our Pentecostal, uh, uh, in Pentecostal churches and, and among charismatic brothers and sisters, they would identify in many cases this as being an ecstatic utterance. That in a sense, you, it's as if you're overflowing with the Holy Spirit and you start, start jabbering in, in effectively an ecstatic, an overwhelmed kind of abundance of language. Now here's why I think this is very dangerous. This is dangerous because the ecstatic utterance, this kind of sense of being out of control or feeling overwhelmed to speak in this way, is not simply a Christian phenomenon. It is a pagan one. It is one where you go across the history of religions, not just in our modern day today, but going back through history to see that the occult, pagan practices, the heathen world, has adopted a form of ecstatic utterance that is this kind of babbling. I want to read you uh, uh, from uh, a man named George Cutton, who has studied this. He said, glossolalia, this idea of this, this, this ecstatic, ecstatic babbling, is practiced among non-Christian religions. The peyote cult among the North American Indians, the Haida Indians of the Pacific, Pacific Northwest, shamans in the Sudan, the Shango cult of the West Coast of Africa, the Shago cult in Trinidad, and on and on and on and on with this idea of ecstatic utterance. In fact, Really where the modern view of tongues as an exercise of spiritual gifts arose was from a man named Charles Parham. He was at Bethel Bible School right around the turn of the, of the 20th century, right around 1900. And do you know what Charles Parham believed? He believed that these were known human languages. And in fact, his view was that he could train up a, a, a fleet of missionaries exercising this gift to go out into the world and evangelize the lost in languages they'd never learned before. And in fact, the, the tragedy was they went out into, on the mission field and realized people couldn't understand what they were saying. And it was indeed a great discouragement to many of them. I only say that to say, even at the very root of what we would say modern tongue speaking was at least an interpretation that recognized that there was something known in the message that was being communicated. And this is why I say with humility and with great love and charity for those who see it differently, I don't see any scriptural support for the idea of learning to speak in tongues, of the idea that we need to be taught how to begin framing sounds in a particular way, or I need to empty my mind in order to allow this kind of overflow in a gift of tongues, simply because I do not believe that the true ecstatic utterance is what is in mind here in 1 Corinthians 14 or in the book of Acts. 
I think another example of this we see is exactly what Paul is communicating here in 1 Corinthians 14. It is this idea that there is an interpretation underlying it. And not only that, but that the person who is exercising the spiritual gift of tongues has control, complete control. What kind of control? Look with me at verse number 28. But if there be no interpreter, let him keep silence in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. The idea of an ecstatic utterance that I can't control, that comes out in terms of maniacal laughter or, or animal sounds or something that I simply have to overflow into is simply not in keeping with, as we see it in 1 Corinthians 14 that it is to be regulated and it is to be controlled for the edification of those who are around. So for that reason, I believe that this genus of spiritual tongue gifts excludes this form of what we would call true ecstatic utterance. That raises this question by way of conclusion. What language are they speaking? What language was being spoken at Corinth in this exercise of gifts. I want us to just note one thing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, on two different occasions, Paul uses this idea. In verse 10, he says that God the Spirit gives diverse kinds of tongues. And in the end of the chapter, he uses the same Greek word to say that the Spirit gives diversities of tongues, various kinds of tongues. Now, isn't that what happened in Acts? Oh, there was a whole variety of tongues, at least a dozen that we can identify already were given as tongues. And so I believe that we would say, exactly with Paul, what kind of language do, does someone exercising the tongues gift at Corinth, what kind of language were they speaking? I would say various kinds of languages. Exactly what Paul says here. Now, let me, if I could, answer this question you might ask, what kinds of languages, could those languages be human or are they divine or angelic? How would we think about that question? If they truly are languages, if they truly have a communicable, knowable message that may be interpreted, what would we say in answer to that? Here's what I would say. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. You say, why? Number one, because the Bible doesn't make it clear. Some have suggested that in 1 Corinthians 13, when Paul says, if I speak with the tongue of men and angels, that Paul is suggesting there is an angelic speech, an angelic language I can exercise with the gift of tongues. Is that possible? I suppose it's t- possible that Paul had that in mind in the, uh, at Corinth here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I don't know that it's clear enough to be dogmatic about, but think about what the point of tongue speaking at Corinth actually was. Paul said, this, you're speaking a language you don't understand. And others don't either. And I'll tell you, at least for where I sit with what Paul is attempting to say here in 1 Corinthians 14, I don't really feel it's all that important to know whether it's a human language or a divine one because I don't believe scripture tells us clearly And the simple point is, the person speaking doesn't understand. That is the basic idea here, and I will leave it on there. If you have different views on that, of course, I am willing to hear them. All right, so there is the genus, the broad family of tongues gifts as they are presented to us in the scripture. And I see here effectively two species One species in the book of Acts in which God was communicating important, redemptive messages for key groups of people who needed to hear in the exercise of this spiritual gift. That's the differences that arise for me in the book of Acts. And in the book of 1 Corinthians, I see Paul seeming to suggest a species of tongues gift that may be exercised in private for one's private edification or may be given in public for public edification if there is interpretation to it. Again, that is simply attempting to play the ball where it lies scripturally and, and simply say, here is what 
it, the Bible seems to be saying. Now, what does this rule out? What does this idea of species of tongues rule out? Just very quickly. One, you may have heard the position before that the tongues gifting in our New Testament was used for the purpose of evangelizing the lost. And I simply say I cannot believe that that is the appropriate interpretation of the word of God. I simply do not see, other than Acts chapter 2, any other place in our scripture where it is assumed that the exercise of tongues gift will be speaking to unbelievers for their salvation to draw them to faith. In fact, 1 Corinthians 14 presumes exactly the opposite. Look with me back to to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Listen to what Paul says. He says, in the law it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people. And yet for all that they, for, for all that will they not hear me, saith the Lord. He's commenting on Isaiah 28 when God says, you have been mocking my prophets, saying you're just talking as if to babies, precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little. It's like we're going back to grade school. We're so sick of this. And God says, okay. If you don't like the message I've been sending through my prophet because you think it's too simple, one day I'm going to send you a language that you don't understand and is going to be for your judgment. And Paul quotes that passage to say, notice his conclusion, wherefore tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. But prophesying serveth not for them that believe not, but for them which believe. You say, what does he mean? What does he mean from Isaiah chapter 28? God was saying, I'm going to send you a language that you don't understand that's going to confirm your judgment. Do you see that's why he says in verse number 23, if the whole church be come together into one place and all speak with tongues and there come in those that are unlearned or unbelievers, will they not say that ye are mad? You're crazy? I think the point that he's making is simply this. Just like in Acts chapter 2, some unbelieving Jews saw the exercise of this gift of tongues as a a fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 28 and said, they're drunk! Confirming the judgment of God on them. So too, there may be an exercise, Paul says, of this uncontrolled gift of tongues that won't be for an evangelistic purpose, but will instead only drive people away. So I don't believe that we can say that tongues, the gift, exercise of the gift of tongues in Scripture, was intended for an evangelistic purpose. Was it a sign? Yes. Does that mean that it was used to advance the gospel or that was its primary purpose? I don't see that. Also, I think as I noted, we also, I do not believe that in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is intending to suggest that there is never any place at Corinth for a private exercise of tongues. There are those who would say Paul is clearly criticizing the practice. Paul is clearly saying that we should only speak with our understanding. There is no place for speaking a to- in, a, in the gift of a tongue when I don't understand what is being said. As I said, I do not believe that what it, that is what is Paul is intending to say because he says again at the end of this passage, he says, if there is no interpreter, you can go ahead and speak to yourself and speak to God. So where does that leave us? That leaves us, I think, in one important place. What about today? All that I've been intending to communicate from this message is what does the Bible say for what was going on then? The broader question then is what about today? How do we deal with those who purport to exercise the gift of tongues today? How are those, if at all, uh, relevant to be interpreted? How are those to be governed in a local church context? What is the practical application for us. I want to turn to that issue next week, but I want to leave us simply with this. We have to be very careful. We have to be very careful when we interpret the word of God 
that we are not arguing from a preordained conclusion. I must say, as I've read across this issue broadly, and as I've tried to understand where different folks in our Christian spectrum today come from on this issue, I am concerned that too often we approach this issue like other issues in Scripture saying, what do I want the Bible to say? Or how does the Bible line up with my own personal experience? And therefore, if it lines up or it says what I, or I want it to say a certain thing, I will interpret this passage to say what I already want it to say. Friends, that is not a legitimate way to interpret the word of God. The way to come to the word of God is not to argue from our predetermined conclusions. It is to come to study the word of God to reach our conclusions, and then ultimately to seek to apply it however the Spirit would have us in our lives. So remember, what does the Bible say across its entirety on this gift of tongues? Let's distinguish among, between genus and species. Let's recognize the overarching gift that God seems to have given to the church in this day. We know that he, has given, that he gave to his church individuals to speak a knowable spiritual message in a language they've never learned. And let's prepare our hearts to study the word of God and come next week to conclude on what this means for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have a message for us in your word that applies to us today. And Father, we don't want to be those that handle the word of God deceitfully. We want to be those who cut it straight, who simply interpret it as it says, not as we want it to say, and then simply let the chips fall where they may. And I pray, Father, that you would open our eyes, free us from misunderstanding on this important topic, and may we ultimately come under the authority of your word and trust that it is sufficient to be for our benefit even today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.